It's no secret that Valorians love to gamble. For better or worse, gambling addiction has become as much a part of the country's national identity as magic, revolutions, and baked surf on casserole. Even though the Feverites nominally outlawed the practice, illegal gambling dens like those in Hunderkopf flourished around the turn of the century. And it is because of that national love of gambling that Maxime Moretz was able to make his fortune. Moretz was in his early 60s in 1911 and had amassed a great deal of money and influence as the owner of one of Hunderkopf's most successful pawn shops. People of all walks of life came through his doors to beg for his favor and he had gotten rich off of their misery. According to legend, if you had taken four Valorians off the street in the 1910s completely at random, at least two of them would be people who owed Maxim Moretz money. He also frequently had business with Aya and Winterlich. After the successful return of Minister LaBelle's ring, Moretz called them in for another job. And this picture is to scale. Yes. Pretty small package for 60 large, but not that I'm complaining. Believe me, Mr. Ayer, it's worth it. Payment will be delivered when you complete the job. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you what will happen if you and your partner can't deliver the goods in time. Believe me, Mr. Moretz, you will not be disappointed. The job was fairly simple. Berthold Siegel, the Viennese art collector, was in possession of a priceless unicorn statue that he had refused to sell. Moretz was willing to pay for Aya and Winterlich to steal the unicorn from Siegel's mansion. All they had to do was drive south, infiltrate Siegel's mansion and crack his safe, get past the guard dogs, Run! and return the stolen statue to the VSR before Siegel noticed it was gone. All in a day's work for Aya, Winterlich and company. The only casualty of the excursion was Colette's new shirt, which was ruined when one of Siegel's guard dogs bit her on the arm. To a near perfectly executed job. Here, here. I'll tell you what, Colette. I had my doubts at first, but now I'm starting to wonder how I ever survived without you. I mean, the way you were able to distract that guard dog. Inspired. Thanks. And you, Telsey, you were on fire. We got back across the border in record time. Oh, it was nothing. Oh, ho, ho, I'm feeling good today, gentlemen. We should do something nice for ourselves, you know. Perhaps we ought to wait until after tonight when we've delivered the goods to dear Monsieur Moretz and been fully compensated for our effort. What's that expression about counting chickens? Aye, what bad could possibly happen to us in the 70 kilometres between here and Hundikov? We're over the hill. We have the unicorn. I still don't understand why this stupid little figurine would be worth 60,000 marks to anyone. It's pure Kearsight crystal. Similar composition to the Kingmaker, and unlike any diamond on Earth. Eisen returned the unicorn to the cloth he'd wrapped it in earlier, and without thinking, put it into his pocket. All right, Telsey. Why don't you take us home? At your service, as always. Hey, we've got a few hours to kill. Maybe, I'm just saying that... Maybe we should take a little detour. To what? There's nothing out this way but farmland and a couple of factories and... At that moment, Telesphore noticed something by the side of the road. It was a painted wooden sign shaped like the head of a devil. Its mouth was agape, and just above its horns were the words, Only five kilometers to go. Upon seeing this, Telesphore was suddenly struck with a cold chill, 
because he knew what that sign signified, and it was not good. No, no, we are not going. But the Devil's Maw is right there. It's right there. Absolutely not. Oh, come on. You never want to go. That's because the Devil's Maw is tacky and it's vile, and I have no idea why you like it so much. Because it's the best. You're insane for not liking it. Yes, I'm insane for not wanting to stand on the mouth of a gigantic underground creature and be forced to smell its hot, nasty breath while also reckoning with the fact that at any moment I could slip and fall down its throat, never to be seen again. Well, when you describe it like that, it sounds completely unappealing. Wait, this is the first time we've driven by the Devil's Maw while there have been three people in this van. We can vote on it. Let's vote on it. You. Wanna go see the Devil's Maw, right? You think the Devil's Maw is a cool, fun place to spend an afternoon, right? Don't disappoint me. I've really got no feelings on it either way. I've never been. That's the worst thing you could have possibly said. That is it. We're going. We're going right now. Two against one. Eyes and wins. Eyes and wins. Eyes and wins. The Devil's Maw is easily the most infamously weird feature of the Valorian landscape. In 1780, a popular newspaper called the Crystal City Crier published a story detailing a remote village called Villecreuse, approximately halfway between Hunderkopf and the border with Austria-Hungary, where a section of farmland gave way to what appeared to be a gigantic mouth in the ground, attached to an equally enormous, stationary, living organism. Upon the publication of this article, geologists and doctors from all over Europe came together in order to survey and study this unusual phenomenon. The local people of Villecreuse, unhappy with the sudden publicity and influx of visitors, pushed all of these geologists and doctors into the pit within about two days of them arriving. No further attempts were made to survey the Devil's Moor until 1860. In 1873, King Auguste de Rosières went on a diplomatic trip to America that included a visit to the Grand Canyon. So moved was he by the canyon's natural majesty that upon returning home to Valor, he reportedly asked his advisers, Do we have any canyons? and immediately set into motion a plan to turn Devil's Moor into a private retreat for himself and his family. These plans fell apart when Auguste visited Devil's Moor for the first time, and realised that he actually found it disgusting. He bought the land anyway, out of a misplaced sense of completionism, and within a year it became a public tourist attraction, beloved by holidaymakers across the nation, for reasons I can't even begin to guess. The peak of its popularity was during the brief economic boom of the 1880s, but in 1911 it was still going strong, a bustling cavalcade of carnival games and Belle Epoque boardwalk kitsch. Oh, smell that air. I'm desperately trying not to. Step right up, step right up. <laughs> hey, hey, big fella. Why don't you step on up and see if you can win a prize for your lady friend? Getting me closer and this cigar is going in your eye socket. Understood. Have a nice day. Good neighbor's my ass. As this was Colette's first visit, she decided it would be a good idea to take the 25 Bruchteil she'd stolen from Eisen's bedside drawer and spend it on an official Devil's Moor guidebook. Meanwhile, Eisen wasted no time in running to a stand selling live chickens. The origins of this magnificent curiosity of nature are still unknown, but Valorian doctors have made countless medical advances thanks to experiments done in and around the Devil's anatomy. 
I don't get why this place is so popular. It smells like old sour beef. Your guess is as good as mine. I got us some chickens. Come on, guys, let's go throw these bad boys into the moor. The moor itself is about 20 feet in diameter. Many travel writers have called it ghastly and affronting. Many report experiencing nausea and vertigo upon looking into it for longer than a few seconds. Some have reported a strange desire to jump into it. Colette experienced none of these reactions upon first seeing the Devil's Moor. Instead, she mainly felt a sense of bewilderment. She couldn't understand how anyone could get as much joy out of the experience as Aizen apparently did. <laughs> get in! Alright, now it's your turn. Doesn't this all strike you as a little... sacrilegious? Naming a weird meat pit after the devil, building a fun park dedicated to it, giving it offerings? It strikes me as a bit... Uh, it's a little golden calfy, don't you think? Uh, I wouldn't know. I was raised a Hindu. Nice. Alright, Telsey, your turn. I'm taking it back to the van and preparing it for dinner. We'll appreciate it far more than the hole in the ground will. Stick in the mud. No respect for the majesty of nature. What else does that guidebook say? Are you getting much out of it? The bravest of visitors may choose to descend into the throat for an unforgettable sight. Should you encounter any difficulties on your visit to Devil's Maw, our courteous park keepers are all trained in fleshcraft in order to better maintain the health of both the Maw and its visitors. Aizen! The staff here are fleshcrafters! Aye, but I guarantee you they'll all be novices. As much as I would love to deliver two pieces of priceless Kearsight crystal to our client later tonight, you're not going to get people here that can do much more than mend a broken bone. Speaking of, we better hit the road. Alright, I've had my fun. Now where is... Present. One day you're going to do that and I'll just murder you. Oh, you've brought their camera. Telus 4 set up the tripod and the three of them all crowded together for a snapshot. In the resulting photo, Aizen looks overjoyed, Colette looks slightly uncomfortable, and Telus 4 looks like he'd rather be anywhere else on Earth. The moor is barely visible in the photo, but if you look carefully at the lower right-hand corner, you can just make out the shape of Maxim Moretz's crystal unicorn slipping out of Aizen's coat pocket and falling through a gap in the railing. Shit! What? What happened? The unicorn! It's back in the van, like we ought to be. No, it isn't. I put it in my pocket and I must have forgotten to take it out before we got out. Why on earth did you put it in your pocket? It doesn't matter, right? What matters is that I just fed it to the big hole in the ground. In a moment of blind panic, Aizen started climbing the fence with intent to jump. It's likely he would have if a member of park staff, one Daphne Lights, hadn't been walking past at the time. Daphne, like all Devil's Moor Park keepers, was trained in basic fleshcraft. Her abilities were nothing spectacular, but she had enough command over living flesh to mend minor injuries and, if need be, lift unruly patrons like Aizen away from the edge of the moor from a great distance. Um, sir? Sir? You're not allowed to- Sir, please refrain from climbing the railing. It's very dangerous and against safety regulations. Listen to me, lady. I just dropped something worth 60,000 marks into that pit. I have 
to get down there. Well, I'm really very sorry. Perhaps we can send someone down for it and have it posted to you? No time. The man I promised that merchandise to is meeting me in Hundikov in three hours, and if I show up empty-handed, he will make sure that I end this day with several fewer body parts than I woke up with, so if you don't let me... Daphne also knew a spell that let her close a person's windpipe. That one was not only handy for dealing with unruly patrons, but also very useful in fending off the overly forward gentleman who regularly tried to talk to her on her morning bus commute. Once again, I'm very sorry, sir, but it's the best we can do. The scene threatened to quickly devolve into chaos. Eisen was flailing around, gasping for air like a dying fish. Telesphore, seeing his partner in distress, instinctively went for a small revolver he kept in his jacket. Seeing this unfold, Colette quickly stepped in to defuse the situation. Who do I talk to if I want tickets for the descent experience? Oh, of course. Tickets are over by the Ferris wheel. Fantastic. We'll all three of us go down there and look for the package ourselves. Sorry for troubling you. My pleasure. If you run into any problems, feel free to ask for me. My name's Daphne. In the early days of the park's existence, the descent experience lived up to its name much more. It was both a real descent and a genuine experience. The metal staircase implanted in the walls of the throat went all the way down to the crop, where it was possible to look down and see into the stomach. However, the staircase was significantly shortened after a number of incidents which occurred in the mid-1890s. Despite the truncation of the path, the ticket price was not lowered. It still cost two marks and 65 brooktile. Alright, if we can get down to the bottom of the stairwell and I can get eyes on the package, I should be able to bring it closer. Can you do that? Aye. I know a couple of crystal spells. I'm better with glass, but crystal's close enough. And if it's out of range? Ah, oh, it can't have fallen far. It's small, so I don't think the devil's even able to feel it. Eisen rushed ahead and pushed a young couple out of the way in order to use their binoculars. Right, you, out of the way. Huh? Excuse me. Thank you. Keep your eyes peeled. Colette dutifully helped Eisen look. Meanwhile, Telesphore smoked another cigar to banish the smell and desperately tried not to touch anything. As Colette looked around, she caught sight of a glint of crystal, and there it was. There! There it is! Eisen left the binoculars. My apologies, sir, madam. As you were. And went to join Colette. Nicely done. Tell! She spotted it! Hurrah! All right, you wee shit. Come to Papa. He extended his hand, fingers splayed, and concentrated. Across the throat, the unicorn started to move. Just a little further. However, as Eisen had said, he was much less familiar with crystal than he was glass or metal. Okay. Almost. <coughs> oh no, my moustache went into my mouth. Oh no. No. No, no, no. Even the smallest distraction could throw him off. Oh, for fuck's sake, you wee bastard! <sighs> alright, alright, this is okay. We just need to get down into the guts and get it back. You're kidding. I don't think you actually understand how much is riding on us delivering this stupid little unicorn, Telsey. Is 60 grand really worth being digested alive? Mm, compared to what Max and Moretz could do to us if we show up empty-handed. Aye, but we can't do this alone. We need a local guide for our expedition. You know, 
Somebody who knows the devil back to front. Somebody who knows fleshcraft. Devil's my postcards? Sir, postcards? Hello, Daphne. I'm a friend of the man you pulled off the railing earlier. No need to make a scene, just come with me. I'm really sorry to be doing this, darling, but it's life or death and we need someone of your particular talents. Do you think you can do that for me? Uh-huh. Thank you. Come with me. Hey, you said we could call you if we needed help. I said you could ask! Oh, what do I do? I never covered this in employee training. We need you to get us down into the guts. Sir, I already told you. If you need to retrieve something from the stomach, we can retrieve it and send it to you via post. Daphne, sweetheart, I only have three hours to do this. Otherwise, a man named Maxim Moretz is going to terraform my ribcage with a meat tenderizer. What you want me to do would be quite a severe safety hazard. Now forgive me for not caring. You're a flesh crafter, I'm an artificer, and if we work together, we'll be in and out in no time. Trust me. Now, can you make us a path down? Well... <sighs> Telesphore, who wanted to spend as little time in this place as possible, decided to forego diplomacy entirely. He picked up Daphne and dangled her over the edge of the platform. How about now? Hey, hey, whoa, 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 all right, all right, dial it back, big guy. I appreciate the enthusiasm, but come on, we need her alive. Maybe we can offer her payment. What? No, we've nearly lost 60k, plus what we paid for the tickets to get down here, plus she said we could call her if we needed help. It's all part of the job description, isn't it, Daffs? You keep saying that, but you're grossly misunderstanding what I meant. Telesphore held her over the ledge again. All right, all right. With an intense focus, Daphne started to shift the topology of their surroundings, summoning up a makeshift staircase of bones and fleshy protrusions from the throat wall. Oh, very nice work. Ladies first. You know, I've kind of always wanted to do this. I'm not surprised, but I'm still disappointed. So, what's your business with those two mental cases? They saved my life once, and because of circumstances beyond my control, I couldn't go home. So, now I live and work with them. They really don't seem like the heroic type. They aren't, generally, but they're not horrible. Not all the time. So, hypothetically, if someone needed to undo a fusion transmutation spell... I don't know what that is. Oh. Could you do my arm up? A dog bit me earlier, and I think it might be infected. Yeah, I can fix that. Thank you. While the two women continued with trepidation, and Telesphore desperately tried to keep himself from fainting out of sheer disgust, Eisen seemed unfazed. To light their way, he had a halogen bulb in one hand, which he had liberated from the wall, and kept lit with a bit of applied artificery. Oh, you love this, don't you? A little bit. You know, when I was a kid, the stairs used to come all the way down the throat. I remember doing basically this exact walk with my mother and her using it to teach me medical terminology. I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but was she okay? All right, we're going to have to jump through the sphincter into the crop. 
The soft tissue will cushion our fall, but we all have to jump at the same time. Right. Got it. Please never say sphincter again. One, two, three. The four of them leapt into the depths, leaving the surface world behind as they went down the throat through the opening. They landed on a patch of spongy tissue, surrounded by a few still-living chickens. Everyone alive? Yes. Yes. Regrettably. Tell, stop being a baby. I, I lost my hat. What's that glowing blue thing in your hair? Oh, uh, not nothing. <laughs> All right, keep an eye out for a crystal unicorn. By the dim blue light, the four of them searched. It was Daphne who first spotted the reflective glint of crystal among their slimy surroundings. Oi, you got it? Yeah. Great, hand it over. Daphne picked up the unicorn, but she did not hand it over. Instead, she raised her hand and called down a vein from the inner wall. It wrapped around her waist and pulled her upwards like a bucket out of a well. Yowie traitor! Aizen jumped to try and grab her by the ankles, but it was no use. Daphne repeated the spell multiple times, being passed from vein to vein. In this manner, she made her escape, essentially leaving Aya, Winterlich and company for dead. You get back down here! Daphne, come on! You fixed my arm! We bonded! Sorry, I really am, but let's not forget that you threatened my life. It's you or me. Sorry! Alright, we no longer have to worry about the crystal unicorn. Our focus is survival. We'll shake Daphne down for it when we get out of here. I thought you said you'd rather be digested alive than face Moret's empty-handed. Yes, but ideally I'll be doing neither. No giving up! Get up and make yourself useful. Upon getting up, Telus Four was made aware of a slight residue on his clothing. I'm going to burn this suit if we survive. Yes, I know you're disgusted. Get over it. Of course I'm disgusted. The smell is even worse in here. He went to get out another cigar, but Colette stopped him. Don't you dare light up in here. The gas composition is different to regular air. You could light us all up. Listen, Dar. Colette. You've been reading that guidebook, so you're our new navigator. Right. Right. So, right now, we are in the crop, which is sort of like a little storage area just above the stomach. The obvious way out would be the way we came in. The walls are too smooth to climb. Okay, well, that's our only option aside from going down further. Let me see that. Aizen snatched the book from her and started flipping through it. On one page, he stopped to examine the illustration. It was of a surveyor, climbing down into the crop using the same kind of cleats that one might use to scale an ice wall. Aizen looked from the illustration to a scattered bunch of bones on the floor beneath him. He picked one bone up, weighed it in his hand, and realized that he had an idea. I have an idea. Using his pocket knife, Aizen started to whittle what appeared to be a cow's femur to a sharp point. Collect up as many of those bones as you can, and find whatever you can that can be used for tying. We are climbing this baby. Over the next few minutes, the trio created a variety of spikes to use for climbing, and with a generous donation of Colette's hair... What was that? Nothing. They were able to tie them to their shoes. It was a slow climb, but it was better than nothing. So they really don't know what this thing is. Nope. But there are a few leading theories. It could be from the center of the Earth, 
Some people think it might have used to be a person. No kidding. Yeah, some historians think it might have been a flesh spell gone wrong that the mage then buried in shame. Or maybe it's some ancient torture they only used once. Eisen, who was at the front of the convoy, looked up and saw where they were. They would have to climb upside down at a roughly right angle in order to reach the exit. Alright, this isn't going to work. We can't get out from here. There's an opening up there. That should give us a shortcut to the lungs. I'll climb in first. What do you think it is? I always figured it was another abomination from the care site. Maybe there's a portal underground and this thing's stuck in it. If we have things like this back home, I've never seen one. Oh, this is unpleasant. Are there any other theories? It could just be hell. I'm inclined to believe that. They made it to the other side of the tube, and when they did, they found themselves in the lungs. Alright, now we have to make it cough us out. Then we will have an hour and a half to track down Daphne, get our unicorn back, and haul ass to Hundekoff before Moretz decides to hunt us for sport. Colette, what's the gas composition like in here? It's mostly the same as it is on the surface. These structures are what filter the pure oxygen out and transfer it to the blood. Excellent. Telsey, since you've been so brave about everything, why not treat yourself to a cigar? Are you sure it'll work? It's worth a shot. I know the damn things always make me cough. Oh, it's working. But it's important that you irritate the tissue without actually damaging it. Because any damage done to the body will incur the wrath of the immune system. What close. As the lung contracted around them, Telesphore lost his footing, causing the cigar to slip from his fingers and landed on the tissue under his feet, burning it. What did I just say? I didn't intend to do that. He scrambled to pick it up, but it was too late. The devil had been wounded, and as happens when any of us are wounded, its immune system had been triggered. But whereas a human being's immune system is made up of white blood cells, the devil's immune system was made up of slithering beasts. Each one was about the size of a cat, colorless, covered in thousands of filaments and antennae. They came out of every crevice and hollow in the surrounding flesh, and they were visibly unhappy about the intrusion. Sensing the source of the injury, they began swarming Telesphore, who only barely managed to get away before being covered in them. The antibodies began spitting at the spot where the cigar had fallen. It would have been very inconvenient if Telesphore had gotten any of this spit on him, as the antibody's saliva is a sort of enzyme solution which both disintegrates potential irritants and soothes inflamed tissue. A man who came into contact with this solution during the 1860 survey had his left hand completely dissolved. According to him, it didn't hurt in the slightest, and actually left his stump rest with a pleasing tingle not unlike that produced by topical menthol. There are so many of them. Colette, you better start building up some strong feelings and resentment and hatred real fast. Okay, okay. Thea wanting a rush on an order. Father making me call his new wife mom. Sister Dolores blaming me for defacing the school bathroom when it was obviously Veronica Hirsch's fault. I are taking me down into this gooey hell maze after some dumb little figurines! 
Colette was successful in her counter-attack, but the force of the blast was enough to push her, Eisen, and Telesphore backwards, through the tunnel, and back down the throat. They bounced off the wall of the crop, ricocheted downwards, and kept falling until they came to... The belly of the beast. Literally. Everyone alive? Yes, but I lost my glasses. How about you, Tell? <coughs> I take it that was a yes, Rich. <sighs> I, uh, I am going to kill you in your sleep. If we live. Now, glasses. There you go. All right, status report. Well, the bad news is the guidebook is now wet and I can't read it. And the good news? I read earlier that because the creature is stationary, its stomach acid is extremely weak and its metabolism is very slow. So we'll probably die of dehydration months before digestion sets in. Lovely. <laughs> Look, I'm sorry I dragged you guys here. I just wanted to see if it lived up to how it felt when I was young. And to be fair, it pretty much did. Up until this whole mess. Oh, I'm very happy for you. I really am. I'm glad it was worth it. Can you cut that out? What? The sarcasm and the snide comments. You've been totally useless this entire time. Well, excuse me. I can't help it that I, unlike you two apparently, have a working gag reflex. Hey, I'm just as disgusted as you, but I'm keeping it together. Fantastic. Would you like a medal? We wouldn't even be here if it weren't for you putting the unicorn in your pocket and just leaving it there. Why would you do that? I don't know. Why does it matter? What matters is we tried to get it back, and we failed, and now we're here. Live with it. Live with this? Telesphore had given up on trying to stay clean or composed at this point, and now was chiefly focused on trying to drown Eisen. But as Eisen was repeatedly dunked in the viscous liquid, and he found himself having difficulty breathing for the second time that day, he noticed shapes under the surface. From what he could tell, they were too regular to be organic. This gave him another idea. Tell! 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 Stop! Tell! Winterlich, let go! Move me! I can get us out of here! You better not have just said that to get me to stop. <coughs> no, I'm serious. <coughs> There's stuff in here. <coughs> Some of it might be metal. Really? <coughs> Oh, give me a second, let me just confirm. Oh. <sighs> I was right. We're not screwed after all. There's so much metal down there. Convenient. I think it's all part of the stairs from back when they went down longer. Oh. They must have just dismantled part of it and let it drop down to the depths. Well, some of it looks like surveying equipment. There's also a worrying number of skeletons. Animals? Mm, nah. The pieces were rusty and degraded, but it was still forged metal, and thus still within the artificer's purview. Using magic, Eisen was able to loosely weld the pieces together until he had a rudimentary raft. Yes, get in! With all three of them on board, he did his best to try and levitate the contraption, but unfortunately... It's way too heavy. We're going to need more oomph than what I can provide on my own. I think we were on the right track when we were in the lungs. We ought to make it sick. Brilliant. But we need a way to agitate the bile. We can't use fire because of the gas. But... Oi, you know Colette? 
You did a really good job at blasting those antibodies earlier. Yeah, well, in times like this, it's not hard to summon up feelings of resentment. Think you could do it again? Not enough to blow me up, though I'm sure you want to. Just enough to, say, boil the goo a little bit. I could try. Excellent. Let's do it. Colette took a deep breath and crossed herself before closing her eyes and picturing the faces of every person who had ever wronged her. Aizen and Telesforce squeezed each other's hands. Meanwhile, on the surface, business continued as usual. Tremors were not uncommon in the area around the Devil's Moor. However, there had never been a full-on eruption in the recorded history of the park. Other patrons were too busy running for cover to notice Aya, Winterlich and Guise shooting out of the moor in a ramshackle boat, falling 30 feet and crashing through the roof of the chicken stand. Once they'd all confirmed they were still in one piece, the trio ran to the park manager's office. The park manager, who was getting ready to assemble the cleaning staff to take care of the mess, was already quite frazzled when three very damp, sour-smelling people burst into his office demanding to know the whereabouts of Daphne Lights. She said something about needing to get to Hundekopf to make a bank deposit or something. Hundekopf? Sir, you better be lying to me right now. I'm fairly sure that that's what she said. Now, if you don't leave my office right now... Say no more, sir. We'll get out your hair. <laughs> there, there. Oh it's out of our hands, darling. Come on, I'll cook up that chicken and we'll take a nice hot shower before dinner. Now, you may be wondering where Daphne was when all of this was taking place. Immediately after escaping the moor, Daphne clocked out early, changed into her civilian clothes, and got on the first omnibus headed to Hundekopf. With a quick visit to a local inn, she was able to get directions to Maxime Moretz's pawn shop. Moretz was initially sceptical of her and ordered his assistant to toss her out, but after she used her windpipe trick on him, Moretz agreed to hear her out. After a lengthy discussion, he agreed to give her the full 60,000 marks. Pleasure doing business with you, Herr Moretz. And you, mademoiselle. Shame about Iron Winterlich. Want me to bring him in? No, not yet. I think they may still be of use to us alive. Something that young lady said to me just now struck me as very intriguing. It was quite offhand. But it was something about a dark-haired girl and a mysterious blue diamond.
This episode of the Kingmaker Histories was written and audio engineered by Meg Malloy Tutin with executive production by Henry Galley. Thanks to Trevor Roberts for providing the inspiration. Our music comes courtesy of Vivek Abhishek. This episode featured, in order of appearance, David Alt as the historian, Graham Rowett as Moretz, Takai Nazir as Eisen, Blythe Renee as Colette, Josh Rubino as Talisfor, and Addison Peacock as Daphne, with additional voices by Jamie Douglas, Meg Malloy Tutin, and Henry Galley. If you're interested in supporting the show, please follow Kingmaker Pod on Tumblr, Twitter, and Instagram, or search for The Kingmaker Histories on Facebook and Patreon. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you after a brief holiday hiatus, returning on January 7th.